I was reading through Ecclesiastes recently. Ecclesiastes is a Greek term that was used to translate the Hebrew a term called heleph, which means teacher or a thinker, and uh, that is the, the name that the writer of Ecclesiastes applies to himself, which uh, most scholars believe was Solomon. And uh, Solomon writes this in chapter 3. He says, there's a, time, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. And then he goes on and he, he writes that there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to mourn, a time to dance. And he goes on and, and on and on. And then he gets to the end and then he summarizes it this way. He says, you know, God has made everything beautiful uh, in its time. And I was thinking a lot about that as I was reading through it and this idea of seasons because um, in so many respects, uh, we at Parkview have, have gone through a, a seasons of growth uh, and especially, I would say, a, signi- a significant season of growth over just the last three years. And I don't really know how else to, to, to describe it because I don't like to use the word blessing a lot because it's so overused. Who really knows what it means? But um, I guess we could say that it's been a, the seizing of, a season of God's blessing, of God's good favor uh, on, on our church. And uh, if you look at our numbers, and Dave will, Dave will show you some statistics a little while in a little while, but since 2009, we've experienced about 30, somewhere in the mid-30, 33, 36% uh, growth in just adult attendance on Sunday mornings. And if you, compare, if you compare this past December, December 2012, to December 2009, there's a 73% growth. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of, of, of growth. In fact, the Sunday before, um, the Sunday before Christmas, Christmas Eve, you know, we, we didn't have any service on Sunday. We moved everything to, um, to Monday. Uh, but I came in on Sunday, and I had a few things I wanted to get, get done. And then I, I came in here. It was very quiet came in here, I turned on some lights, and I just sat on the stairs and prayed for a while. And I was just praying, you know, God, we just, we just want people to hear the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so I just prayed that he would bring people, the right people who, who needed to hear that message and, uh, and give us the opportunity to share it on Christmas Eve. And uh, on Christmas Eve, if, if you were here, we, went, we had, how many services did we have? Five? Five services? Uh, we had 2,000 people show up. Uh, that's a lot of people, and uh, I'm I'm really humbled by that. I, I've, I've told the elders a, a, a lot that I, I never signed up to be the pastor of a big church. Uh, I, I just wanted I just really want to tell people about Jesus and teach the scriptures. Uh, all the other things, all the other necessary things, are just peripheral to me, um, and I and, and I. That's really what I want to do, and it seems that God is bringing more more people to us so that they can hear this message of the gospel. And you can just sense there's this there's a sense of momentum, sort of that's building a sort of this spiritual wave that that uh, of God's spirit moving uh, among us and, and moving us forward. And as as Solomon says it, uh, it's a beautiful thing, and I'm I'm humbled to be part of it. But I've asked myself the question: Why are we seeing this this type of growth? I mean, it's it's pretty staggering when you think of the numbers and, um, and the percentages. And um, we don't count people uh, just for number's sake. Every, every number, as Dave often says, every number represents a person and represents a story. 
and uh, you know we, we, we make sure we track how many people are here. Uh, in Acts chapter chapter two, uh, the uh, the early church uh, kept a record of three thousand people coming to Jesus and getting baptized. So if it was if it was good enough for them, it's good enough for us. But we count people so we understand who's coming and and the impact on our facility and all those things. And you know I see a lot of struggling churches in our culture, uh, uh, and I wonder why are we seeing this kind of this growth. And uh, I, think, uh, I think first it has to do with uh, biblical truth and conviction. I mean, we are, we are committed to teaching biblical truth uh, with no apologies and to do it well, to do it clear, and to do it with practical application. And I, and I, think, I think that's what God wants us to do. When people walk into the church, they, they, expect, uh, uh, they expect the Bible to be talked about. And, and so we're going to open the Scripture. We're going to take a look at what God has to say about life and love and all these things and, and do it without apology. But also, along with that, uh, as far for me personally over the last couple of years, I've realized that people in America, and we talked about their culture this morning, really there's only three approaches to life that people in our culture can, can uh, uh, embrace. Uh, very simply, atheism. And that's not just, not just a, an official belief system, but sort of a default way of living, sort of functional or practical atheism where people just, they just ignore God or, or uh, you know, denies his, uh, his existence or just being around, you know. Or there's theism where people believe that there's this God, but they're into the whole religious performance deal. Or there's biblical Christianity um, where we talk about the grace that we experience through Jesus. And explaining the difference to our culture of those things, I think, is, is critical. The difference between atheism and religion and the biblical uh, gospel is a pretty effective way of challenging people in our culture today about what they believe. And, and by doing that, it brings them to a place of decision. They have to make a choice, one way or the other. And what we're seeing is that when people begin to understand what Jesus has actually done for them, and they, they embrace this gospel of grace and they embrace Christ, it transforms their lives. It does. Not from the outside in, that's religion, but from the inside out. And, uh, I mean, keep in mind the, the, what I call the BOP, the basic operating principle of religion is, you know, I work hard to be good and obey so that I might be loved and forgiven and accepted by God. But the basic operating procedure of the gospel says, I am already loved, graciously forgiven and accepted by God through Jesus. And so I obey. That's, I am motivated internally to serve and to give. And, uh, and, and what, what's happened to me on the inside is affecting, you know, what I'm doing on the outside. And we're seeing that happen with people. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, I met with a young guy who wanted to get together. Uh, he's uh, in his early 30s, a career guy, family. Um, uh, we sat down over coffee at Caribou, and, uh, and he was telling me his story, and he grew up in a in a, in a mainline uh, religious home, and he hated it, didn't enjoy it, it really meant nothing, absolutely nothing to him, and so he kind of, you know, he absconded from the whole religious scene throughout his, his teens and early 20s, and when he got married, and he, they had, he and his wife had some children, they, they began to realize they needed, they wanted to kind of re- return to God and into, into, into the church experience and kind of reinvestigate it, explore it, and, and so about eight months ago, nine months ago, uh, through uh, relationships, uh, of some people, they got invited to come here, and they've been coming ever since. And I said, so tell me about that experience. And, and he said, you know what, what I've realized for the first time 
is that my whole religious perspective, my whole religious experience and uh, life was based on performance. It was about um, what I needed to do for God to approve of me and to like me and, and kind of earn my way. He goes, I didn't really think of it that way, but as I reflect on it, that's how I was operating. That's what I thought. And he goes, for the first time in my life, I understand grace. He goes, I understand it. And then he said, and so I'm in, man. I'm in. I want to serve. We want to give. We want to serve and give and be part of a community and get in small groups and all this. And it was really cool to talk to him and hear that story. And we, we hear those stories a lot. Uh, uh, Kim Whetstone was telling, telling me the other day of a, of a young woman who's come just recently and ha- has had the same kind of experience and talk. So that's what we're seeing. And, um, and, it, and it's making a difference because there, there are... One of the things this young man said to me, he goes, you know, what I think is there are a lot of people, this was really quite insightful. He says, I think there are a lot of people sitting in churches who look a lot like Christians. They talk a lot like Christians. But a lot of them are kind of stuck where I was in this performance, you know, works-oriented deal. And I think he, I think he na- you know, hit the nail on the head. I think that's really true. That even people in our own Christian churches uh, haven't fully embraced grace. It has in their heads, yes, but it hasn't moved to their hearts, and so they're you know they're operating out of guilt and obli- and it's the weird obligation thing. When when what grace does is it brings about a joy in serving and giving and and an excitement about it. And uh, you could see this in this this young guy's life, but I be- I believe that's what's happening here as we as we share the gospel as we teach the, the scriptures with uh, with a sense of conviction uh, that the the truth of the gospel and of Jesus is changing people uh, from the inside out. And that's a good thing. And then the second reason, uh, I think, for the season of growth is uh, biblical compassion and our willingness to, as a church, to welcome and embrace and serve everybody around us. And I mean everybody, especially uh, the poor and those who are oppressed and marginalized overlooked and uh, looked down on in our culture. You know, uh, our man of ministry has been an important part of forming uh, who our church is, our, our culture as a church. And if you're a guest, uh, Manna is, our, is uh, our ministry working with our, our homeless friends, our friends who are just struggling with a season in their life where they have no place to live and for various reasons and trying to help them move through that experience and, uh, and, uh, and get back to a place of, of health and, and, and a place of uh, security. In fact, one of our longtime members, uh, uh, Paulette Stozek, who many of you know Paulette. Paulette uh, was always around the church, big white hair. Uh, she's just a lovely person. She, she came here years and years and years and years ago. She was homeless. Uh, she's worked her, worked her way out of homelessness uh, and then has served herself. Uh, and uh, She herself has served in our man of ministry for years. A lovely person. Uh, uh, Paulette went to be with Jesus this week. Uh, she was found uh, dead in her apartment, uh, I think it was Friday, and we just got the news yesterday, and, you know, that was, it was, you know, it was heartbreaking, uh, but one of our other formerly homeless uh, gentlemen uh, in the church came to me today, and he said, he goes, I want to thank you and the church for what you've done for our community. If it weren't for Parkview, so many of our friends who we've seen go home to be with Jesus wouldn't be with Jesus, and, um, and so I think that has that has created this culture of, of, of acceptance and embracing people no matter where they are in life uh, or in their journey. And, uh, and the compassion that we show um, 
you know, every week and the compassion we demonstrate through uh, generous serving and giving and, and doing it all for the benefit of others, I think is compelling. And I only think that Jesus says it's going to be compelling. And um, just today we had a young man come uh, to the church for the first time. He, is, he actually contacted us. He needed some help with doing some community service. His name is Rashawn and uh, he came um, a couple weeks ago, and we we given him some things to do around the church. What a great, a great young man! And and uh, he and uh, uh, a friend came today, and uh, and it was, he was just embraced as if he was already family. And that kind of thing, I mean, is compelling. It's compelling. That kind of compassion, you know, according to Zechariah. Zechariah said, this is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. And, uh, and I really think that's happening with us. Well, last weekend, I was in, I mentioned this morning, I was in uh, uh, Michigan for a small retreat. Uh, I go to it each year. We bring in a, uh, a, a speaker uh, to address, you know, sort of um, contemporary issues for the, the modern church. And... Um, this, this year is a guy named Dr. John Dixon. He's an Australian, grew up in Australia. He's an author. He's a lot of things. He's an author. He's a filmmaker. He just he produced a film on the historical Jesus. It was like Australia's version of, um, of uh, you know, uh, the History Channel, and it won all these awards. And He's a professor of ancient history at one of the top universities in Australia. He's a theologian. He's an apologist, but he's also a pastor. Uh, he is um, an Anglican, Anglican uh, pastor. And so he came and spoke, and he was talking about what it's like to grow up uh, in a secular culture. He, he didn't come from a Christian home. And, uh, and now what it's like for him to be a, a, a Christian in, in a secular culture like Australia. In Australia, uh, only 60-some percent of people believe in God in some form or another. 10% are avowed atheists. And only 8% of Australians uh, are Christian or connected to any degree of church. Only 8%. So it's a really, it is a very secular culture. And John was saying that as an outsider coming into the United States uh, to speak in things, as an outsider, he can see America rapidly becoming more and more secularized. And uh, in some ways, for, I think for us in America, you know, when you're right in the mid middle of things, you can't really see, see the forest for the trees. Well, he's looking and, he's, and he says, I, I can see you're going the route of Australia. And so he spoke to how that should affect us as, as Christians in America. And it was fascinating some of the things he had to say. And uh, one of the things he told is his story of faith, because he didn't come from a Christian home. And uh, uh, I'll just give you the abbreviated version because it's fascinating. And you'll see, you'll see why it makes sense in a minute. But he was telling the story how he, um, um, in, uh, when he was in school, I think it was early high school, this, uh, this, this elderly lady came, came to the, the school to teach a 30-minute Bible class. It was allowed because the government of Australia figures, you know, religion is religion. At least we should know about it. So they let her come in to teach this class. And uh, come to find out, uh, she was uh, the wife of one of the wealthiest men in Australia, a big-time publishing guy. She lived a very short distance from the church where uh, John went to school. Uh, but they didn't know that. But uh, as she was teaching the class, he would try to trick her with questions and all these things. But she never, she, she always treated him respectfully and answered his questions the best she, she could. He said it was the first time anyone really answered questions about the whole religious thing. And and so she got to know some of these students, and she invited one day John and a, a number of his friends to her house for a barbecue, 
put one on the bobby, I guess they would say over there, right? Put a shrimp on the bobby. I wanted to say that to him in the worst way, but I thought that would not probably be a good idea, so I withheld that. But, um, but uh, because we were out on a walk along Lake Michigan for about an hour and a half talking, and I just wanted to say it so bad. But um, uh, anyway, so he goes to this barbecue, and he and his friends go to this, it was a ginormous, ginormous mansion. And they were just like, what? What is this lady? Who is it? What is this lady doing? You know, and so they found out who she was. And, and so th that began this relationship with this group of students that she had. And she'd have them over and they, she'd talk about faith. And so they, be, they learned that her name was Glenda, that she was a committed Christian. They learned what she believed about Jesus and what she believed about other issues. And, um, and then he said a, a funny thing happened one day later in high school. He and a bunch of his friends were out. And they, they, they were out drinking and partying, and then one of, their, one of their friends just got hammered. And he was throwing up on himself. It was disgusting. And, and uh, so they, they wanted to take him home, and they thought, we can't take this guy home. His dad's a military guy, and, you know, we can't, his dad's going to freak out. So what are we going to do with him? So what they decided to do, they take him to Glenda's house. And, uh, and, and they go there, and they ring the doorbell. Well, she was in the midst of this big, fancy dinner party with all these, you know, hoity-toity guests. And what does Glenda do? She comes to the door. She answers the door. She doesn't turn them away. She says, come on, bring them in. Marches them past all the guests, takes them back in the back section of, the, of the, her mansion, says, clean them up. We'll put them to bed. We'll watch over them tonight. We'll take care of them. The next day, John and a couple of friends come, and there, there is Glenda and their friend. She's making eggs and bacon, which I'm not sure anyone who wants to eat eggs and bacon after a night of carousing like that, but maybe that was a little dig. I don't know. But... Um, and John said, you know, it didn't seem like a big deal at the time. Like, yeah, so Glenda did that. And he goes, it took me a couple years to think through it. And he was finally it dawned on me one time, at one point, why did I think that that was okay? Why did we think in our little pea brains that it would be okay to take this, this hammer-drunk kid to this woman's house instead of taking him home? And he said, we realized we, we could do it because we knew what Glenda would say. She'd she disapproved of the party thing. She, we knew what she was going to say and how she was going to feel about it. But he said, we took her because we knew she loved us. And we knew that she would love us no matter what. And then he said, so what I've, re what I've realized is that her, her impact on me becoming a Christian was profound because Glenda had a way of, um, he said, um, flexing her muscle of, of, of biblical truth and conviction while also at the exact same time flexing her muscle, muscle of compassion. And then he said, that is what the church needs to do. You, because sometimes we go, we, we're, we're all about conviction and truth with no compassion. Sometimes we're all about compassion and, and feelings and all, with, no, with no conviction. And John says we need to flex those muscles all at the same time. And that's what the church in Australia is trying to do. And he said, I'm telling you, the way America is going, that's what the American church needs to do as well. And the fact is, there, there are a lot of Christians in America today who somewhere along the line have, have fallen into this idea that, that our mission is to somehow reclaim a Christian culture for ourselves by way of politics, media, policies, all those things. But that is not our mission. That is not our mission. We are not called to reclaim a culture, but we're called to bring people to Jesus which will impact culture, but our goal is to bring people to Jesus. But because many assume the former, that we've we got to reclaim this culture, then a lot of Christians uh, in America are, are functioning, as John would put it, 
in, in, in a very different mode from reaching people for Jesus and being on this mission, uh, they're really operating in what he refers to in an admonition mode. I just want to show you the differences that he, he pointed out. This was profound to me. He said, because when you're in admission mode, and this is in a, a non-Christian culture, in a secular culture, he said, if, if you're in admission, a, admonition mode, uh, then you think you're still in Jerusalem. And you think everybody around you believes in God the same way you do, and you make these assumptions, and you treat like people that way. But he said, when you're in mission mode, you're more like the Apostle Paul, and you realize, we're in Athens. And so like Paul, when he was in Athens in Acts 17, he, he addressed the philosophers of, of Athens in a way that they understood. He said, when you're in mission mode, you get that. But if you're in admonition mode, you, you treat people like black, backsliding Christians, like they kind of should know better and, and that you kind of, you know, get on them for things. But he said if you're in mission mode, you realize that the people of our culture are pagans in so many ways. You know, they believe in God, but the things of God are foolishness to them. They don't understand them. And so our expectations on them uh, are, are, are unrealistic. And he said when you're in admonition mode, we walk around with this air of superiority and this era of entitlement. We're entitled to a Christian culture and Christian policies. But when you're in mission mode, you realize, no, we're not entitled to that. And so you operate out of humility. When you're in admonition mode, we rebuke the culture. But when we're in mission mode, we serve and love the culture. In fact, John said, love it subverts secularism. It subverts it. And then he said, if you're in admonition mode, you hope for social outcomes. But if you're in mission mode, you hope and pray for gospel outcomes. And that was profound to me because I, I thought of that in terms of our church. And without, without trying to pat ourselves on the back because, you know, I've never seen that, 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 that kind of layout before. But I think some of our growth is because we are operating more and more in that kind of mission mode. And we understand we're in a secularized culture. We're among... Um, we're among pagans in so many respects. People who, the things of God are foolishness to them. They don't understand them. And so we need to treat them and act toward them with humility and love and, and try to flex those muscles of biblical truth and conviction with, and the muscle of compassion all at the same time. And when we do that, we're going to see God work in people's lives and we're going to see more and more people coming to Jesus. We're going to see growth. We're going we're to see an excitement building. So what do we do? Uh, so what do we do about this growth that we're seeing? How do we how do we respond to it? And um, and it's important for me that you understand the strategies uh, that we're developing to, in, in terms of moving forward are not intended to be ways of just getting bigger. Okay, so just so we're on the same page of that uh, of that we're we're not this is not intended to be ways that we can become a bigger, bigger, bigger church. But they, these things come in response to what God is doing. They're in response to what uh, the kind of growth that God is bringing to us. So and with just a broad stroke, here are four things uh, that we feel God's leading us to do and we need to do uh, going into the future. First, we need to write, rewrite our Constitution. Uh, the Constitution is not an inspired document, in case you were wondering. Okay, it's not an inspired document. Didn't come to us on, on you know, big, you know, these, these uh, stones engraved, you know. Uh, the, the Constitution is meant to be a document that explains and offers written guidelines as to how uh, we do things as an organization. 
And the last time we did anything really uh, to the Constitution was back in 2009 when we made some minor amendments, but they were, they were pretty minor. Uh, they didn't really prepare for the growth that we've seen. Prior to that, uh, we made changes in 2003, but essentially our current Constitution was written for a relatively small church, at least in terms of its procedural elements. And those need to be changed because how a congregation of 120 does things is very different from a church of 500 and very different from a church of 15 to 1,500 to 2,000 people. And so we need to take a look at those and, and make a rewrite of the Constitution. Um, uh, the second thing we need to do to respond to the growth that God is blessing us with is make some staff transitions. Uh, there's always gains and losses to growth. There's some things that you gain that are exciting. You lose some things that you're going to grieve. But smaller churches uh, can have a luxury of having staff members who are generalists. You know, they can do a lot of different things. Uh, but bigger, the bigger the church comes, uh, becomes, the more you need staff who are specialists, who focus on certain areas of expertise. And for us right now, we have more and more young families with children coming than ever before. I mean, the number of kids, the number of students is, is, is really quite impressive. Uh, in fact, it's stressing our facility. Uh, at the moment. And the thing is, we want to provide not just good programming for our children. We want to provide good pastoral shepherding care and counseling and resourcing for these parents and for these children and for these families. I mean, we want them to have not just a good children's ministry program. We want them to have godly, healthy marriages and healthy families. And so we want to strategically provide that kind of attention and that kind of care necessary to, to promote that, to make that a reality. And so we believe Susan Shelley has the passion and the knowledge and the experience and the gifts to provide that kind of shepherding care. Uh, most of you know Susan. Susan's been our children's ministry pastor for a long, long time. Her and I have worked together for a long, long time, it's, and we've had a lot of fun. I believe we have a lot of years ahead. Uh, but we really think that Susan has so much more to offer uh, our people and our families and our and our and our uh, young married our our young marrieds and all, all those that she has so much more to offer people than just running programs and recruiting workers and all that and so we want to we want her to have the time and the opportunity to to leverage her her experiences in life and her gifts and and be more and more accessible to people so that we can better shepherd them we can better care for. Uh, those families and, and marriages and, and kids. So we are transitioning, Susan, to a new role uh, in the church, uh, to the role of pastor of family care. And those are the kind of things that she's going to do for us. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, but what about the kids, right? Well, we're not going to forget about the kids. Uh, we are currently involved in a nationwide search uh, for someone to come join the staff and focus on children's ministry initially and eventually help us think more comprehensively about ministry to the next generation from the cradle uh, to college. Uh, and so we've been on a, a search process that started two months ago. Uh, there have been over 350-some resumes uh, for the job. Uh, that, that resume list has been whittled down, was whittled down to about 70, then whittled down to about 20. And within the next two weeks, we will have the top six or seven uh, candidates uh, who uh, we can consider bringing on staff. And so uh, that's an important thing for us to do. And in, even as we grow beyond this, there are going to be staff transitions here and there. But uh, we're going to move on that. Um, uh, we are moving on that right now. Uh, also, in, in response to growth, uh, the growth that God has given us, 
we're going to have to update and improve, improve this facility. The facility is six years old. Uh, it's, it's taken some wear and tear already with the, the, the growing number of people in it every week, every Sunday. And with a growing number of families and, and children that are coming, uh, we realize we've got to figure out a better way of dealing with the log jam that exists on Sunday morning, getting people in the door and up and, and into children's ministry area. Uh, it's, a, it's a very challenging experience, especially, uh, you know, dropping off kids, getting them signed, especially for our guests. It's very, the flow of traffic is very challenging, and uh, we need to rethink that and, and perhaps solve that problem. Uh, and along with that, you know, we always say that, that relationships are important to us, and they are, but we have very little space uh, in our foyer, in our area, that, that are, that's conducive for people to actually connect talk, spend some time together, and we think there are some renovations, some creative ways that we can create those spaces and, and help uh, those things along. Uh, in addition, the facility is kind of wanting in terms of uh, security system. Uh, we need to improve those. Uh, we also we need to improve on energy efficiency, and, and if we can, creatively make more room for some people uh, in terms of uh, 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 auditorium and Sunday morning adult services. So we're thinking through that. We're beginning to think through that strategically, what that might look like, how that might happen. And then fourth and finally, uh, uh, in response to what God is doing, we're feeling more and more led to expand our influence to the east. Uh, and we've talked a lot about that over the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, in Acts, uh, Acts 16, there's a story of Paul having a dream one night. You remember the story? During one night, he's in Troas. And during the night, Paul has this vision of a guy over on the west of him in Macedonia standing and waving and begging Paul, uh, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia and help us. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, we haven't had any visions of anybody waving us in. But, um, but we're, we are feeling more and more compelled uh, that the time has come for us to plant uh, an, a, a, a more um, uh, incarnational, I guess you would say, presence uh, in the east, uh, east of us, you know, where Paul was being called west, we're being, we're being led to go east. And when we think about all the doors of opportunity that God has opened for us over the last couple of years, I mean, along North Avenue there, uh, you know, we're, we got, I don't know how many people in two of the poor schools in DuPage County mentoring, tutoring students, and uh, the schools would love us to have more influence. We have new name working uh, uh, to reach out to young women in the adult industry, uh, getting them out of that industry into rehabs. Uh, we have a majority of our guests on Sunday morning are coming from the east more and more. And so uh, the sense is that going is urgent, not optional. So two things that we want to do uh, as we move forward at some point. There's no timeline on this, but this is what we're looking at. At some point here, Lord willing, uh, we're going to establish a second campus somewhere between here and 294 that will uh, connect with... Uh, those, uh, those communities uh, along North Avenue, Villa Park, Lombard, and maybe even part of, of Elmhurst. Uh, what that will look like, we don't know exactly. Where that would be, we have no idea. But we're, uh, we're opening our eyes and praying about that, that God might uh, show us uh, what he would have us to do. So that second campus would involve uh, having a, a Sunday service there. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, if we were to do that, we would want to have a campus pastor there. Uh, and there's other implications for uh, uh, worship band and those kind of things. But we're, we're beginning to look at that. And if you recall, a couple years ago when we were talking about influencing, uh, bringing spiritual influence to the East, uh, we said we don't want to just plan a, a Sunday service. Uh, we want to actually be the church in those communities for a while and, and, and establish some 
relationships and credibility, and I feel like we've really done that. So uh, that's what we're thinking about at some point here. And then we're also, we're also uh, really seriously thinking about establishing a community center uh, in and around uh, North Avenue that would minister to the families along that, that corridor. You know, one of the things John Dixon said last, uh, last weekend, he was talking about the church in a secular culture, and he says the church needs to go back to the way it was in, in, in the first century where the church established itself as the center of the community. It's where people went for help. And I thought, he's right. And so uh, we would like to do that over along the North Avenue corridor. And so what we're going to do here moving forward is we're, we're asking a couple of our people uh, to... Uh, uh, to go into, once again, and talk to community leaders and just ask them what's going on in the community. What do you feel some of the needs are in the community? Uh, and just kind of get some feedback on that. But uh, what would a community center entail? could t- entail a number of things. I mean, it, it, a place where, where moms with, with children could go during the day just to have a place to go where there's Wi-Fi and, and maybe uh, something for their children to do. Maybe there could be tutoring classes, English language classes, career-type counseling of some sort or another, personal financial counseling, maybe just the basics of budgeting, uh, maybe tax advice or preparation, maybe free music lessons for underprivileged kids. Uh, Maybe uh, I think we should provide some legal advice for people. Last weekend I met a a guy named Bruce Strom. He is uh, the executive director of an organization called Administer Justice. Bruce was a a pretty um, successful lawyer. He was a pastor's kid. And uh, his pastor, uh, his father was a pastor in a very small church. They were very poor. And when he was a kid, he said, I am never going to be poor. And so he went off to law school, became very successful. Uh, he uh, arg- argued a couple of cases before the Supreme Court. And, and at one point in his life, he realized, I'm not happy do- doing this. This is not what God wants me to do. And so he gave up his practice, and he established and started Administer Justice. It's a... Um, it's a, it's a movement toward providing from within the local church um, advice, legal advice, from a network of, of attorneys that donate their time a couple hours a week. And one of the things Bruce said was, he said, you know, in America we talk about having the right to an attorney. He said, but that's only true of those accused of a crime. But that's not true of those who are victims. And so his organization works to provide legal help in and through the church to low-income or no-income situations. And we know, you know, from working with our, our homeless friends that sometimes, you know, um, uh, they have some outstanding legal issues. But, I mean, we've taken them to court. We've sat with them in court. But we can't give them legal advice, you know. But we, we don't know how to network them. And uh, Bruce Strom's organization would help us do that. And uh, he pointed out that there are 2,000 verses in Scripture on providing and helping to give justice to the poor. And so I think that would be a really good thing to do. Uh, we could also do some basic medical help or screenings out of a community center. Uh, in fact, we were just looking at an organization that comes in and does a one-day, um, a big one-day thing for a community related to medical issues, and, and that would be a good thing for that community. So uh, that's another thing that we're look at, looking at. And the, the, the harsh reality is this. A lot of people don't want to lo- look at this, but poverty uh, is moving in, uh, into the suburbs and increasing in the suburbs. And we're convinced that rather than closing our eyes to it, God wants us to engage it and provide the kind of, uh, of help and assistance and, uh, and love that uh, people need along North Avenue uh, in low-income or no-income families. And, uh, and I believe the end result of that is not going to be a social outcome per se, but a gospel outcome as people 
respond to the gospel as it's demonstrated through uh, acts of compassion and justice. Now, um, that's a lot, and I realize that raises a lot of questions. Yeah, a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions, and I don't have an answer to all of them or even a lot of them. But I wanted to share some of the things that we're thinking just so they're on your radar screen. Uh, and we realize that what we're thinking about are pretty big things. Uh, but they're all dependent on God's lead and God's provision. Um, uh, and these are big dreams. Uh, they, sh they certainly are. But I think, we, I think we need big dreams. I think we're ready for big dreams. And I think the church in America should have big dreams. At the very le least, as Christians, we need to have a new dream. Because the American dream ain't cutting it. The Amer American dream it has become little more than live for myself, my own comfort, my own security, my own preferences. And that dream has seeped into our churches and into our Christianity. And so there are a lot of Christians around our nation who are settling for a faith that, that just revolves around catering to themselves when the call of Jesus is actually to abandon ourselves for the sake of others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian. You've probably heard of him. He struggled to follow Jesus in the midst of Nazi rule. And he authored one of the greatest books of the 20th century. He wrote that the first call of every Christian is the call to abandon the attachments of the world. And the thesis of his book is summarized in one sentence. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Bonhoeffer uh, entitled the book, The Cost of Discipleship. There are about 4.5 4 billion people in our world today who have yet to experience the love and grace of God found and experienced in Jesus. About 1 billion people haven't even heard of Jesus. What happens to them when they die? It's the most important question for Christianity in America. What happens and do we give a rip? If people go to heaven by being good and religious, then there's no urgency for us to reach them. But if people are facing eternity without God, then we have no time to waste uh, our lives, our resources, our energy on the American dream. We need to abandon that for a new dream. There's no plan B for the world. The church is plan A. And so as Solomon puts it, there's a time for everything, a season for every activity under the sun or under the heavens. And as I was thinking about that, I realized, you know, on, the, on my desk in my office and my blotter, I, I, for years I've had this little saying that I think is really good and helpful. Uh, it says this, in seasons of struggle, be strong. In seasons of strength, be humble. In seasons of success, be careful. In seasons of opportunity, be courageous. In every season, be prayerful. And that's, that's what we intend to do. And, uh, and I, hope you'll, uh, you'll hope it, I hope you'll do it with us. So I'm excited. I'm excited about what we might do. Uh, I encourage you to pray and continue to pray uh, on, for God's leading and uh, God opening doors for opportunity for us. But uh, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of room for the gospel to, uh, to go out and for people's lives to be changed. And so it's pretty exciting. And speaking of exciting, I'm going to ask Dave to come up and share some, some uh, information with you that I think is only going to build the excitement.